looked the part Blend in with the rest of the church crowd I know the routine I can list the other Bible studies in town Watch Christian TV I know all the preachers, their cliches Been born again Without a doubt I know I'm saved But sometimes I hurt And sometimes I cry Sometimes I can't get it right No matter how hard I feel inside And sometimes I fall Stumble over my own disguise I try to look strong As the whole world looks on Sometimes alone I cry Try to speak faith Never give the devil One inch to get in I do worship And praise Let everybody know Just where I stand On the back of my ride Is a fishing across For the whole world to see I know God is good All of the time Yeah there's no Doubt for me Sometimes I hurt And sometimes I cry Sometimes I can't get it right No matter how hard I seem to try And sometimes I fall And stumble over my own disguise I try to look strong as the whole world looks on, sometimes alone I cry. Thank you, Wyatt. I did, really appreciated you playing along with our hymns this morning, too, brother. Yeah, that was great. If you have your Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you are a parent, or even if you're not a parent, you'll probably remember at some point somebody said to you these words, just do what I tell you, right? I mean, uh, if your parents ever said that to you, don't do what I do, do what I say, maybe something like that. Uh, here's what I'm getting at. We want our children to be obedient, don't we? Well, we want them to do what we tell them to do. Them. And obedience is defined kind of this way. Obedience is doing what you're told. Uh, it is about conduct is what obedience is all about. It's not about saying the right things. It's not about thinking the right things. It's not feeling the, the right things. Obedience has to do with conduct. 
the scripture we're going to look at this morning has to do with conduct. That's the reason I'm entitling the sermon Obedient Children. That's how Paul or Peter starts out the scripture we're going to look at this morning, verse, verses 14 through 19, is he addresses them as obedient children. And obedient children is, is about what you do, but it's also about who you are. Uh, we are obedient not necessarily because we always do the right thing, but because of who is in us willing us to do the right thing. Last week we looked at the very first uh, part of this transition that starts in verse 13 where Peter starts to transition from telling us all about the wonderful things we have to hope in to giving us what we should do because of that hope. In verses 1 through 12, he lists basically grace. That's exactly how I summed it up. It's reasons we have to hope, but those reasons all focal around God's grace, His grace in our salvation, His grace in the securing our salvation, His grace in testing our salvation. Just everything had to do with God's grace. His graciousness towards us. We didn't deserve any of the things that He does and does continue to do for us. And because of that grace, starting in verse 13, Peter transitions and gives us three imperative commands. And the first one we looked at was that we would hope fully in the grace to come. The next two we're going to look at this morning are found in verses 14 through 19. And I'll give it to you right now. It's that we conduct ourselves holy or we have holy conduct. Let's just put it like this, to be holy. We're going to talk about that in a second. The second one is to conduct ourselves in fear. Those are the two commands, and that's why I say this has a lot to do with conduct. And in some of your versions, it's not going to have the word conduct, it's going to have the word conversation. And that's because you're reading the King James Version in 1611, when they translated that from Greek to English. The English word they were using for actions and activity was conversation. So when it says conduct yourselves, or... Uh, to uh, converse or to have holy conversation. It's not talking about uh, talk. It's talking about your conduct, about your lifestyle. Well, anyway, let's look at our scripture, verses 14 through 19. He starts off, he says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Some of your versions say conversation right there, but it's, it's, that, it's that understanding. It's talking about actions, okay? Verse 16, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning concentrate and focus in on your word. I thank you for what you do in us and through us, and I thank you for your presence in this place. God, I call on you because I'm a failure when it comes to preaching, when it comes to leading. And so we desperately are in need of your presence and your intervention uh, we can't do anything on our own. That's what your word teaches. That if we abide in you, then we will bear much fruit. Lord, we want to bear fruit in our lives. We want your word to bear fruit in our lives. We want you to bear fruit in our lives. It's your name I pray, Lord. Amen. So, to be holy is often misused to refer to purity or sinlessness. And it's not referring to that at all. 
To be holy means to be separated, to be set apart. To be holy means that you're not part of the common group. For instance, in our schools today, there are two types of students. There are AP, uh, or I'll say it like this, I don't want to separate the students. There are two types of classes. <laughs> there are AP classes and non-AP. AP stands for Advanced Placement, right, Jordan? AP. So there are a little bit more, uh, there's a little more things you have to do in the AP classes. And so those classes are a little bit different. They are set apart because the requirements for those classes are different. They're set apart. There's more um, homework. There's more studying. There's more projects. There's more papers and, and things of that nature. It's not that they're better necessarily. It's that they're set apart. They're different. And so you would say the AP students are holy in regards to the non-AP classes. Now, Kids, don't go to school tomorrow and tell your fellow students, you're not in AP classes? Well, you're not holy like I am. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just, it's a very weak illustration to talk about being set apart, to being, to being different from the rest. And that's what this is saying. As obedient children, as God's children, we are called to be set apart from the rest of the world. And what Peter goes on to do is he gives us some implications of what it means to be holy. First, he gives us the standard. He doesn't say, as Baptists be set apart, or be set apart like a really good churchgoer. What is the standard he sets? As God is holy. As it is written, verse 16, be holy for I am holy. You see, God's standard of holiness is our standard of holiness. Now, I don't know if you understand that implication, because God is extremely holy. There's the rest of the world, there's all of creation, and then there's God. And that's why we often think that being holy has to do with being completely sinless. Now, to be completely sinless means righteousness. That's righteous. And that's why I'm saying these are not necessarily one and the same. To be holy means to be set apart. But because God is so pure, because He is so sinless, because He is so different, we often connect these two together, and rightly so, because if we are to be holy as God is holy, His standard is one of sinlessness. While the rest of the world is going and doing whatever they want, God does what is right, and His call on His children is to do the exact same thing, to do what is right. The standard of our holiness is God, and it not only affects actions, to be totally pure not only affects our actions, but it affects our thoughts, it affects our, our motives, it, it affects our attitudes. Why I do what I do, why I think what I think, and how my thoughts lead to what I do. You see, everything God thinks, every motive He has, every attitude He has is pure and it is right. And that is the standard we are to have. Now that's hard, right? That's difficult. I know you're like, wait, are you saying we're supposed to be perfect? Bear with me, but essentially, if God is our standard of holiness, then that's kind of a high standard, isn't it? And that's the point. If you remember what we just read at the very end, I hate to skip ahead to the, bad, to the good part, but that's what the blood of Christ was all about. It's because we could never meet that standard. But it does not remove the expectation or even the obligation that we live our life to that standard. 
of God's holiness. The call of God on His people has always been that we would be set apart from the rest of the world as He is set apart. And I know that can be difficult, that can be hard, because nobody wants to stick out like a sore thumb. But in reality, our calling is to be like God and not like the world we live in. In regards to attitude, God is holy in a wide range of ways. While we are not to be jealous, because our jealous is usually based on uh, an evil motive or a, an ulterior motive or our selfishness, God has a holy jealousy. If we could have a jealousy like God's jealousy, then that would be awesome, but we can't. Our jealousy is based on selfishness. His jealousy is based on nothing should be greater than Him. While every human being has a breaking point, will lose their temple. temper. The Bible teaches God is what? Slow to anger. Meaning that He graciously extends mercy. Meaning that He doesn't blow His top like we might do when somebody pushes us just a little too far. God's grace, His patience goes for hundreds and hundreds of years before He eventually brings down punishment on His people. You read about that in the Old Testament over and over again. He's not only slow to anger, but He's quick to forgive. It's another point of holiness, how He is set apart from the rest of the world. The world holds grudges. I would say the world even suggests that we hold grudges. Revenge is a, best, a dish best served cold, right? Ooh, we all want to have some sweet revenge. God says, no, don't hold a grudge, forgive. God says forgiveness is final. Just confess and I will forgive. And what does he do? The Bible says he puts it as far as the east is from the west. That's how he's so holy compared to the world, which wants to hold on to a grudge and keep reminding you year after year and then say, well, I forgive you. I just can't get past it. That's not forgiveness. I believe you either have an attitude of extending forgiveness to others or you do not. God's attitude is an attitude of forgiveness. And we see this time after time in his scriptures. And that attitude is what sets him apart from the rest of the world. And it is the standard we are to have as well. Peter not only sets the standard for our holiness, how we are to be holy as God is holy, but he also sets the manner in which we are to be holy. What does he say? I want you to be holy between the hours of 8 to 5, right? No, no, no. I want you to be holy on Sunday because that's the Lord's day. Is that what he says? What does he say? In all your conduct in all your ways we are to be set apart the word in greek language for all translates all every single bit every single aspect of our life in fact the way this word actually seems in the greek language is it doesn't just give a broad stroke of the whole picture but it is an emphasis on every single stroke of the big piece of art. So you need to be holy in every single little detail of the whole aspect of our life. That means we give holiness our consideration not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, but on every day and on every hour of the week. Holiness is a 24-7 kind of deal. Every aspect of our life, every hour of our life is supposed to be a call into holiness. Why? 
because the one who sets the standard for our holiness is always holy. God doesn't have a punch time card slot thing that he punches out and say, okay, I'm off. Uh, God the Son, you come in, it's your turn to be holy, right? God doesn't do that. We have the same calling as God, that we be holy in all our conduct. The temptation is, is that we section off or compartmentalize our lives into areas that we deem as holy and those that we can ease off the holiness stuff. The mindset is that when we are in church, that's when we do the holy stuff. That's when we do the spiritual stuff. But that's not God's calling. In fact, church is not our Sunday morning experience. Church is our body. Church is our life. If we're born-again believers, then we are a part of the church. And so church isn't just something you do on Sunday. Church is something you are a part of every day of the week. That's why we call on one another. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we hurt and rejoice with one another because we're not a Sunday thing only. We're a big piece of whole pie and, and, and it's, an, it's an everyday kind of thing. Here's the problem though. On Sunday mornings, we, we, we maybe we'll dress ourselves up physically or we'll dress ourselves up spiritually. We put on our best attitude, our best language, our best actions, our best motives. But then once Sunday is over, then so is our holy disposition. And the lack of holiness shows up in a number of ways. The lack of holiness with every point of our life shows up in a, in a number of ways in our life throughout the week. And the, 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 the temptation is to sit here and we could list off ways that we're tempted to be unholy in our life. I mean, we could talk about language. You know, Christians, we're supposed to be set apart from the world in how we speak. I'm not just talking about curse words, but I'm talking about gossip, coarse joking, uh, how you talk about people when they're not around, how you don't want to go to someone you have a problem with, but you want to go to everyone else you, have a you don't have a problem with and tell them about the one person you have a problem with. We're supposed to be set apart. That's what the world does. And the standard that we are set and given by God is that when we have a problem with someone, we go to them, not go to someone else. We're supposed to be set apart in our entertainment. To be holy unto the Lord means that we set ourselves apart by how we entertain ourselves. You know, 25 years ago when I was in the youth group, I felt very much like an outcast because all the kids were talking about the show, Beverly Hills 90210. And I didn't know a soul on that show. And I didn't know anything about the show. And I remember feeling left out. And so one night I decided, well, I'm going to watch the show. And man, you think Desperate Housewives is bad. I don't know. I've never seen that show either. And is that even on anymore? I have no idea. When I was a kid, we used to call it Dynasty, you know, instead of Dynasty. And anyway, I'm, you know, gone are the days of Leave it to Beaver. Gone are the days of Marshall Dillon and... Good night, John boy. Anybody know what show I'm talking about right there? Yeah. Yeah, we just don't have the, the, the same kind of set-apart entertainment we used to have. And so we don't complain about it. As set-apart believers, as obedient children, here's what we do. We turn off the TV. 
go get the Scrabble board or some dominoes or something and, and get the family together and spend some time entertaining yourself that way. I, I'm, 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 I'm just listing stuff off. And like I said, we could spend all day here just talking about the different areas. Really, our lives should be set apart from the rest of the world. And that's what it means to be holy as He is holy. That we not conform ourselves, and that's what Peter says in verse 14, that we not conform ourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. And he's saying, back when you were lost, you did things according to what your flesh wanted. You did things according to what you, know, you felt was right. Don't do that anymore. Stop conforming to that. He saw, it sounds a little bit like Paul in Romans 12 too. Do not, be tra- uh, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stop conforming to the world. Stop conforming to your former lust. Stop doing what you used to do, and instead, you need to live in this new pattern of life you've been given, which is a pattern of holiness. You need to live in this life that you have been given. You see, I know we read this phrase, obedient children, and perhaps we think, yeah, that, that's not me because I disobey all the time. Understand me, I do too. If, this, if, if obedient children were a, a moniker for my actions, then that would not be my moniker. It would be a disobedient child. But understand that if you have been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, this title applies to you. Because it is not defining just what we do, but it is defining who we are. And I understand you might not feel obedient because you disobey. And you might very well be a disobedient child in your actions right now. But the title, Obedient Children, is who you are in Christ. And in Christ, this is our new nature that God is working in us and through us by the power of His Holy Spirit, which He sent to live within us when we were born again. And it is that Holy Spirit that is working in us and through us and saying, Yeah, Brian, that's not holy, and you need to abstain from that. Brian, if you do that, you're going to be just like the rest of the world, and you need to abstain from that. And you can insert your name there, because that's how the Holy Spirit works. He's speaking to us, and He's leading us, and He's urging us to stay from this or to go do that. Brian, you've been called to speak about the the blood of Christ. You've been You've been called to witness to these people. You've been called to be compassionate. That's the new nature that we have been given, this new nature of being obedient children, and it is working in us and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And with this new nature, He puts into us a desire to be transformed, to look more like God. Our spirit longs to be holy like God is holy, to being set apart from the world in our actions, in our attitudes, in our hearts, So why is this such a struggle? Why do I list off these things and maybe, you know, maybe language or coarse joking or what you watch on TV or how you spend your money is a a point of conviction for you? Why is that such a struggle? It's because while God has put a new nature within us, it is still wrapped up in a very fleshly suit. It's still wrapped up in my wants and my desires and this flesh suit is still harboring feelings for its old life. It's still wanting to go back to that girlfriend you broke up with. And part of that old life is fitting in. Part of that old life is just wanting to conform and look like everybody else. 
And Peter knows we're going to struggle to return to what we formerly know. He knows we're going to struggle with wanting to go back to our former lusts. And so in light of the grace we have been given by God, the salvation, the calling, the centuries of prophetic writings leading up to this, Jesus, in light of who Jesus is, we need to live a life that is holy. and Don't conform back to our old ways. You know, the human body is an interesting thing. I had somebody tell me recently, I just can't lose weight because I like chocolate too much. I understand that. I mean, I like chocolate a lot too. But the way the human body works is the more you feed it, the actually is the more you hunger for it. You see, if you started starving yourself of chocolate in a couple of weeks, you wouldn't want it that much. I mean, you might want a little bite here and there, but you wouldn't want it that much. And the way the body works is as you start feeding it something else, that's what it'll start hungering for. What are you feeding your soul? What are you feeding your spirit? Because as you do the things of the Holy Spirit, as you do the things that set you apart in holiness, you will hunger for more of that. You see, the Holy Spirit within us, it rejoices when we make the right decision. Haven't you ever done the right thing and you felt that kind of, yeah, I'm getting it, I did it. And then maybe you took a step back and did the wrong thing and you just beat yourself up and why did I do that again? It's because you have this new pattern inside you, this new life inside of you that says, I don't want that old anymore, but I want it. I'm fighting it. And I'm telling you, the more you feed the holy, set-apart life in you, the more you will want that and kill that old self in you, that old pattern, that old flesh that is still urging and wanting. We will never find the fulfillment and satisfaction of life living for ourselves that we feel when we live a holy, set-apart life unto the Lord. And this is the tie-in between hope and holiness. When we satisfy the Spirit and we live holy lives, it is like fertilizer to the hope in our heart for the Lord. So I ask, do you hunger for holiness? Do you long to live a life that is different from the rest of the world? We need to submit to His leadership and His voice and in prayer ask this question, God, what area of my life am I not living holy unto you, set apart unto you? Then we get to the second command that Peter gives us. We pick that up in uh, verse 17. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, a lot of times we want to read that and we want to translate to fear to mean reverence, to mean awe. And, a lot of, and some of the times in Scripture, that's what it means. But understand this. This is the word, the Greek word, phobia. And it is the word that we get phobia from. This is a fear. This is a deep-seated fear of something. And Peter is telling us this in verse 17. Let me just read it again. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And that statement, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges each one according to each one's work, is basically saying, if you are a born-again believer, don't forget that God is not only Savior, he is judge. I want to pause just real quick, real quick. 
I know we want to hear the really comforting scriptures preached. Everybody likes it when we talk about God is our friend and God is our hero and nothing can separate us from God. But we will grow in our faith when we look at scriptures like this and say, I don't really understand this because fear is not something that we're normally taught. If you go to the big churches, you probably won't hear a, a, a sermon preached on holiness and fear. It's just not real popular with the masses nowadays. But I'm telling you, church, this is part of God's word directed at us. That we conduct ourselves in holiness and in fear. Now, why is that? Why would Peter say that we need to conduct ourselves in fear? I mean, after all, I thought God was a God of love. He is. He is. But we must never forget that He is also judge. And that He is a just judge. Now, maybe you're thinking, that just doesn't sound very good to me. And I understand. But this is His expectation for those who are His people. Why? Why does he expect us to conduct our lives in fear, remembering that he is a just judge? We'll look at verse 18 and 19 with me real quick. Let's just read that again. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The price paid for our redemption was not God's loose change. The price paid for our redemption was not some earthly monetary amount of silver and gold. The price paid for our redemption was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ shed on a sinner's cross. The blood of Jesus Christ, who was completely innocent of all things, shed for you and for me. Peter emphasizes this point, and he goes on and reminds us, Christ, like a lamb without blemish and without spot. It was John the Baptist that said when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so every time we sin, every time we willingly sin, every time we say, God, I know I shouldn't do this, but the whole world is doing it, and it seems like so much fun, we spit on the cross of Jesus Christ. We thumb our nose at the sacrifice He laid out for us. And it's not a sacrifice of gold and silver. It is a sacrifice of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. That's a price that God takes seriously. And so I wonder, when I start reading through this, I start wondering, maybe fear should be playing a bigger part in my relationship with God. And so then I start thinking about some scriptures. When the Israelites were to take the city of Jericho, they were given one instruction. Don't take anything. But there was this guy named Achan. And he decided he wanted to take a few things. And God cursed the people of Israel because of that. And then when they found out that it was Achan, do you know what happened to Achan? It killed him and his entire family. Why? Because he took things that were devoted by God for destruction. He disobeyed God's command. And you're thinking, well, that's Old Testament. You know, we're, we're New Testament church. You're right, you're right. 
In the book of Acts, chapter 5, there was this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they wanted to make a big deal out of what they were doing for the church. They went out and sold a piece of property, and they told the church they were giving the entire money from that property to the church. But they lied. You know what happened to them? God struck them dead, both there. Why? For lying about their tithe. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was ugly. You're like, well, that's just a one-time thing. Well, that's the one-time thing that we got written down. The Bible doesn't include every single thing that ever happened in the history of the Christian church. So then you start thinking, well, well what else? What else? How about Jesus' teachings? Right after he teaches his disciples how to pray, you know, the Lord's pray, prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He prays through that. And the very first thing he says after he prays, Matthew 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 through 15, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. That sounds good. Then you get to verse 15. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. How unholy a thing it is when we say, I have the right to hold a grudge against someone, when God is willingly ready to forgive our sins. Let that sink in for a second. Now, I've heard that scripture preached a number of ways. It doesn't matter how you preach that. The Bible tells it plainly. Forgive or you will not be forgiven. I don't know about you, but that scares me to death. That makes me want to search the recesses of my mind and say, God, who am I holding a grudge against? Because I want your forgiveness. I don't want to live in the bitter warmth of my grudge, but I want to live in the beautiful warmth of your love and your forgiveness. I will forsake all other things if I know I am forgiven by you, O oh Lord. What about being friends with God, right? How are we supposed to live in fear and be his friends? Well, Jesus talks about that as well. John chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, he says, No one has greater than this that they lay down his life for his friends. And then he goes on and says, You are my friends if you do what I command. I want to conduct myself in fear because I want to make sure I'm doing what he commands. Because I don't know about you, y'all are great friends, but I want his friendship more than anybody else's. I'm sorry. That's the friendship that I want. So obedience is very important to God because it shows how seriously, it shows how soberly we take the precious sacrifice of Christ on the cross. One commentary puts it this way, way Fearing the Lord is the caution which timidly shrinks us from whatever would offend and dishonor God and the Savior. And so we do not fear losing our salvation necessarily because Scripture is clear we will not lose our salvation. But we fear offending God who has gone to great lengths to save us, to redeem us, and to give us a new pattern of being children of obedience. I think this is why Peter follows this command up in verse 17 with a reminder of the precious price paid by Christ on the cross in verses 18 through 19. You see, our redemption by Christ on the cross is a reminder of God's holiness and His hatred for sin. On the cross, we see the love of Christ and the terrifying judgment of God on sin. On the cross, we see His wrath and His just judgment being poured out on our sin on his son. 
Could you imagine hating something so much that you put your child to death because of it? And then you begin to understand how serious God takes sin. And then you start thinking about how lightly you might be looking at a particular sin in your life. And it might make you just take a step back and say, God, I'm sorry. I am sorry that I've been thumbing my nose at your grace. I'm sorry I've been thumbing my nose at you and saying, oh, you'll forgive me. God, I'm sorry that I've been living life not in holy fear, but in unholy pride. I've got my salvation wrapped up. I don't need to worry about all that. Here's what else, though, our conduct says. You see, our conduct, our life, speaks about the condition of our heart. And perhaps what we should fear is what our conduct is showing. Perhaps what we should fear is that our hope is not in God, but it is in something else. Perhaps what we should fear is that because our hope is not fully in God, our faith is in not in God. Perhaps what we should fear is that we do not take seriously the precious price that God in Christ paid for our salvation. And so I ask you, what is your conduct showing? That you are truly born again children of obedience? Or is it showing that you don't care? We're going to have a time of response to this message from God's Word about our calling to be holy about our calling to find hope fully in God and to be children of obedience. I ask you to bow your heads with me. I'm talking to two groups of people this morning. During this time of invitation, I want to ask, the first group is this, if you have never confessed Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I want to ask you to take seriously that price that was paid on the cross for your salvation. The precious blood of Jesus that was shed so the price of sin would be paid. And if you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then this morning, perhaps this would be the time that you would make that decision. We have a very simple way of, of explaining what it means to be saved. It's, it goes like this, ABC. Admit to God that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God's only Son. And confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And we do this in prayer. If you've never made that, decision and prayed and asked Jesus into your heart, we want you to not leave this place until you do. We just pray that you would offer up your heart and your life to Him as Lord and Savior. And then the second group I want to talk to is this. If you are a born-again believer and you know you've made that decision and you've trusted Jesus with your Christ, but you've just backslidden away from having a holy understanding and fear of what God has done for you, and understanding that your conduct speaks loudly about how you view that price that Jesus paid for you on the cross. And we want this to be a, a morning of rededication for you. And we just, we just advise you to pray during this time of response and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgiveness is real simple. He says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins. And it's final. And he puts it as far as from the east as from the west. We want to invite you to do that this morning.
turn your life back over to a holy God. Begin separating yourself again from the things that He saved you from. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your presence in this place, and I thank You for the attention and uh, the love of the people that are here. And We just pray that Your Spirit would move in us this morning. And it's in Your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.